Hello, everyone. Great to be with you. Before I get going, I'm actually going to just chat to you about what we as a congregation have been focusing on since January, which is this journey towards becoming better disciples, a journey of maturity. And I start with this quote from Dallas Willard. He says, the greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs. Now, that's quite a big claim, right? I saw my first masked individual walking along Seapoint just now. Had his mask on. I was like, wow, there's a lot happening in the world right now. And there's a lot of heartbreaking needs. But he says, it's whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians, whether those will become disciples, students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence, including this corner of Seapoint. He said, that's the number one thing. If, if we can become practitioners, in other words, allow things to move from concept to fingertips, allow Christ not just to be Savior, but to be Lord, allow Him to set the pace and allow us to get into His slipstream. That would make the biggest difference in the world. And we're convinced that that's true. And so for this year, we've been going on this journey of well, what would that look like? Uh, part of my mulling um, uh, of this is that as a pastor, one of the things I take uh, seriously is that in a world full of distraction, in the world that's trying to pull your mind, your focus, your attention in all kinds of directions. The number one thing I can do as a gift to you is try and draw your attention back to Jesus Christ. To say, he is eternally important. He is the one that we need to look to more than anyone else. And so I want to do that by just sharing with you something of my learning as I've gone on this journey. See, if you're doing something in life, and I'm going to use the example of tennis, right? Tennis. If you're doing tennis, in the point, there's actually three things you can focus on at any one time. You can focus on your performance, like am I winning the points, am I not winning the points? You can focus on how you're feeling while you're playing tennis. Some of you have been winning and feeling sort of very miserable because you're so focused at the same time. There's a difference between performing and your experience of performing. And then finally, there's a focus that you can place on learning. You know, I hit that ball a bit too hard, I hit it too soft, and kind of as you're playing, you're kind of thinking about how you can do things better and whether there needs to be adjustments made. Performance, experience, and learning. Something I've been thinking about is that I spend a lot of my time thinking about performance. Like, am I getting the job done? What's the scoreboard? Am I doing well compared to others, looking left, looking right? Because I'm competitive and I want to win, I pay attention to learning because obviously the more I learn, the better I get at winning. So that makes sense. But the thing I've really neglected in life is actually just the experience. And I know I'm not the only one. If you read Andre Agassi's brilliant book, uh, I was more of a Sampras fan, I must admit, but Agassi... um, was, was he's a good author, and he's written a book where he confesses that despite being world number one tennis player, tennis for him was absolute hell. He hated it. He absolutely hated it. He hated the fact that he had to go up against opponent after opponent, hitting thousands and thousands of balls, and although he was very good at it, his experience of it was pure misery. Why am I saying all of this? Is that as I'm becoming a better disciple of Christ, I'm learning that in life, it's not just about getting your list done and learning how to do it better, is this whole component of life of experience, of the presence of God, such that no matter what we're doing, when we're doing it, we still focus on performance, we still want to learn, but we get to do it with Christ's presence and His Spirit's availability in our lives. That makes all the difference. And so we set three goals as a community, and you'll notice I've turned it into a Venn diagram, which I think just makes it a lot better. We want the presence of God to be part of us, being with Jesus, We want the formation to be becoming like Jesus, and we want mission to be doing what Jesus would do. And given my little intro, if we had to pop all the labels on, presence 
is around the experience of life, that we would express the beauty of God, not just at the start of the day, at the end, but throughout, that part of what it means to be with Christ, to be with His Spirit throughout the day, that we'd be learning, that we'd be forming, that we'd be admitting, I'm not the finished article, I, as I'm going through life, was I a bit harsh there, was I a bit tough, was I, was I loving? And finally, that I would be very concerned with the way in which I conduct myself in this life. I still do want to love God and love people, and I, I want to be concerned with how my one and only life gets spent. Why I've put that up there is I want to tell you that I need to get better at what it means to experience God throughout my day, to be sensitive to His uh, love, and to not just be performance learning, performance learning, but to invite a uh, the truth of God's availability into every single moment of my life. And you know what's helped me is that I often, um, I've I've been learning that there's a difference between trying and training. Trying is like pass-fail, like I tried my driver's license or I tried the exam. And that mindset means that you are going to study up for ages. You're going to spend a lot of time preparing before you step out, right? Trying is like a nerve-wracking thing because you're going to find out, did I pass or I fail? Training, however, is something totally different. Training is acknowledging that you aren't the finished article and that you need practice. Training is hitting balls against the wall, knowing that you're going to hit some wrong and you're going to hit some right and, and you're going to get better as you go along. And I've just felt this encouragement in my life that the walk with Jesus is not trying to meet God's approval, pass, fail, but it's training with God's availability. Jesus Christ came alongside his disciples and said, hey man, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In other words, come into the slipstream of my life and I will train you in what it means to experience my presence, to be shaped into the person I created you to be and to be doing the kind of kingdom mission stuff I've given you in this life. And so I share that with you, that perhaps like me, you spend so much time on performance and learning, performance and learning, because you've kind of concept of life is that it's a big pass-fail exam, that he hope one day I pass. What Christ's teaching us is, no, 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 there's a training that he wants to invite us into, where he coaches us, where his spirit is at work in our lives. And of course, performance matters and formation matters, but his presence is what secures us and, and shapes us. And so there's a bigger diagram. I'm going to show it to you now. You're not going to be able to read it, but we'll pop it into our weekly mailer. I'll also make it available to life group leaders. And um, essentially what we're doing as a community is this. If you ask us, what are you guys about? And there are many people visiting tonight, which we're delighted by. We want to be with Jesus, become like him and do what he does. And there's a whole bunch of things around there, which we are going to each as individuals and as a community take the next step in. So I'll put this into our life group WhatsApp channels. Maybe they can send it to life groups and we'll also make sure it's in the weekly mailer for your distribution. There you go. Five minutes uh, done. We're going to now get into the book of Mark. Lovely Venn diagram, hey guys? We all want to be in the middle there, hey? We all want to be in the middle. The book of Mark is getting going in chapter two now. We've, we've, we've been watched the one. And I thought this would be a helpful analogy. Um, there's a difference between what you want and what you need. Do you remember being a kid and your parents saying, come, let's get in the bath. And you're like, no, 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 no. And your 
parents saying, yeah, here's some vegetables. And you're like, no, 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 right? You can kick in and screaming. You would want to stay up late every night watching any show whatsoever. You would want to eat sweets. Um, do you remember going to like the macro aisle? I remember going macro and just seeing the sweet section going, oh my goodness, they come in packs of 72. <laughs> like, I remember thinking to myself, when I'm an adult one day, I'm just going to buy, I'm going to have like a tuck shop in my own room. And I, I'm actually still, I can, my, my teenager Paul is still very disappointed in adult Paul that I've never done this because, because really this was my big dream, right? And I, I think we can identify the fact that a loving parent doesn't give us what we want. Loving parent gives us what we need. And we might be kicking and screaming, insisting that really the tuck shop in my room is going to be so good for me. But a loving parent says, no, 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 there's, there's the truth that I know you better than you know yourself. And because I love you, I'm not going to give you what you want. I'm going to give you what you need. And Jesus Christ is going to do something similar here in the story we, we're going to read, where someone wants something and Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa I, I know you better than you know yourself. I'm not going to give you what you want. First up, I'm going to actually tell you what you need and give you what you need. So let's read together. It's Mark chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 12, and it should appear on the screen. This is Jesus uh, returning to his hometown. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is God's word to us today. And we're going to take a closer look at this passage, and particularly focusing on, on three kind of main points. This is our structure for this evening, and with some practical questions at the end. The first point is going to be breaking in and finding the king. The reality that these friends broke into a house, uh, wanting a doctor, wanting a doctor, wanting a doctor. They got so much more. In a surprising twist, they encountered the king, the creator, the God made visible. And then we're going to see that this doesn't delight everyone. No, we have for the first time a record of opposition, a record of enemies being developed. And this growing time, for the next few uh, chapters and, and passages, we're going to see this growing tide of enemies who stand against Jesus. But they're not the people you expect. No, they're the insiders. They're the scribes. They're the, the teachers of the law who should have been the most celebratory. But in fact, they're the ones that end up being the enemies of Jesus Christ. And that continues into our final point, which is to say that this ends up being a kingdom where the insiders, the people you thought were going to be 
brilliantly aligned are actually outside the kingdom. And all the people you thought would be outside the kingdom end up being invited in. So let's get stuck in to this passage of scripture. Breaking in and finding the king. You see, Jesus Christ has returned home to Capernaum. What a feeling to come home. He's been on a trip announcing the kingdom of God as well as demonstrating the kingdom of God. And so the crowds start together. It says there in verse 2 that there was no more room, not even at the door. People are trying their best to enjoy the homecoming of Jesus and to hear what he's been about. We don't know the motives of people. They've probably been hearing about the, the healing. They've probably been hearing that there's some new teaching coming out. And we find out that Jesus has been preaching the word to them. And what that is sort of shorthand for is the major message Jesus kept bringing about, which was that the king of the kingdom was here and that the kingdom was utterly different. Jesus was what's regarded as an authority rabbi because many times he'd say something like this. You've heard it said this, but I say to you. Over and again, he would come bringing new teaching and new authority. And so people were going, wow, this is someone who's not just repeating what other rabbis or teachers had said. This is someone bringing about a whole new way of understanding the world. And what he's teaching is not just that there's a king. He's also introducing the nature of the kingdom that that king rules over. And he'd be describing it in a sense that would allow people to really understand what it means to be human. He'd be describing to them the kind of entanglements they would get themselves into and how he could get them out of that. Jesus grew and sustained a crowd. There was quite a lot of excitement around the teaching that he was bringing. And so into this environment come a kind of really beautiful kind of group of people who are recorded now in Scripture. We read that they came... Four men carrying a paralytic. I see this incident recorded and I see kind of the awkwardness of a crowd that you just can't get past. You tap people, you you still can't get past. You eventually go, hey, the roof, that's the tactic we'll use. And there's a sort of breaking in um, and and a lowering, which I mean is a pretty hazardous uh, moment. And, And suddenly they have Jesus' attention. I think of this as quite a challenging kind of part of it, the the breaking in part. I think of my own life, and I probably would have seen this guy, and he said, hey, I want to get to Jesus. I'd be like, cool, bro, that's good. I can't carry you by myself. Have you got three other friends? No. Okay, well, feels like that's a closed door then. Feels like that's a no. Cheers. And, you know, I, I, I could see along the way, there would have been so easy for those four people to kind of go, well, look, there's a crowd. It's packed. We can't get you. Oh, really? Breaking into a roof? It kind of feels like that's illegal. You know, kind of feels like that, that should, shouldn't be God's way. I mean, if God was going to allow it to happen, probably should it, we should probably be doing it legally, you know. All very sensible comments could have been made all along the way. But no, these friends are insistent, and they break in, and we have this recorded forever. The next time we look in Scripture, you're going to notice it isn't taking a lot of initiative for friends. Next time we read, we're going to see a tax collector sitting at his booth, and Jesus comes and hunts him down. He's not even hunting for Jesus, but Jesus includes him. And so this outsiders coming in is, is starting to take place. And what we see happening is that Jesus saw their faith and says to them, son, be healed. I mean, that's obviously what everyone's expecting. That, that should be the line that comes. Here's someone who couldn't bring himself to get into Jesus' presence. And so his friends have made a way. They've broken in. Surely this effort is going to be rewarded. And what Jesus says has got nothing to do 
with what he wanted to have happen, but it's got everything to do with what he needed to have happen. Jesus said, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now, there are many things we can say about this. The one thing we'd say, surely, is that it's quite an offensive thing to say. I mean, if someone comes to you and is clearly wanting something from you, imagine a buddy comes to you and says, hey, man, um, I'm studying for an exam. Can I please study, get your, get your books? And you say, no, no, no. That's what you want, but let me tell you what you really need. <laughs> I mean, everybody's going to be like, what do you mean? Like, you know, I mean, your friend comes to you, I need, I need a loan, now, just for short term. And you say, no, 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 that's what you want, but what you really need is this. I mean, your friend's straight away going, who do you think you are telling me what I need? I mean, I know what I want, and I know that that's what I need. You, you come in along here, and you're straight away contradicting me. That's not a pleasant, easy conversation to have, but Jesus is able to have it. He's able to look through and to get to the real problem. Many would have identified with that man and said he needs healing. That's his big need. But Jesus says, no, no, no. That's something that needs to happen for sure, but there's a deeper need underneath. And you look at his language. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. There's a tenderness. There's a reminder that this is a God who has got an identity secured as the in worship, as we discussed it, there's, there's something other than a made-up identity that you have to self-generate. There's a God who made you and, and longs to call you son and daughter and to invite you back home. He secures him with those words. And then he, at the same time, challenges with these words, your sins are forgiven. In other words, there were sins that you had in your life which resulted in spiritual emptiness. God's felt distant because of your unbelief. You've done life largely not thinking about God. Going, well, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get on with it. I'm going to focus on my own performance and I'm going to get better at my performance, but I, I'm, I'm just living life largely unaware of God and with unbelief in my heart. And that spiritual emptiness takes root and it has a real impact on your life. Not only is there spiritual emptiness, but you'll notice inside yourself then, because there's, there's, a, there's a lack of relationship with your creator, there's an anxiety and there's it's probably a series of identity crises because you don't know who you are. Depending on where you are in the world, you can shift your identity. You go travel, suddenly you're a new person. You're like, I don't know. Do I like Cape Town, Paul? Do I like ski slopes, Paul? You know, which one do I want to be? And you suddenly realize, wait a second, it's quite strange that I can just switch identity as I go around this world. And which one of those is me? And you don't even, besides losing God, you lose a sense of awareness of who you are. And then you relationally see the fallout. I mean, I'm talking wars and national conflicts and history bears that out, but we know even closer to home and close relationships where the fracturing of leaving God out of our lives is evident because without God, it starts to break apart. So when Jesus looks at the situation, he, he sees someone who is in need of physical healing, but he sees beyond that someone who has suffered from the consequences of sins. And what's incredible is that Jesus speaks forgiveness here, but he doesn't just stop there. Throughout his teaching, go and read it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You'll see Jesus almost giving uh, the best summary of what kingdom life looks like. He keeps using the same word, blessed, blessed, blessed. It goes beyond forgiveness. When he speaks about blessing, what he's essentially speaking about is the reweaving of the tapestry of our lives. He's saying, you've left God out the picture, but I'm making it possible for you not to have spiritual emptiness, but to have, but to have the spirit of God alive in you. And that will then allow you to become more aware of yourself. Out goes the anxiety, in comes an identity in God. And slowly but surely, you're able to move towards those that have harmed you, those that used to be enemies, and love them and forgive them and start to see 
the reweaving of this world. So there's forgiveness mentioned here, but there's blessing that Jesus comes to introduce as his kingdom comes, where he introduces his spirit and his work available to us. It's multidimensional flourishing that's available to each and every one of us. And that means that in life, healing will result. Maybe slowly, maybe kind of through very impatient uh, prayers, but slowly but surely in all its dimensions, Christ promises to reweave our lives in the kingdom of God. And so what we see when we see breaking in and finding the king is that Jesus Christ announces that he's the king of the kingdom and that he alone offers forgiveness of sins. And Jesus knows that when he announces this, his authority is not going to be accepted by everyone. There's going to be a group of people who straight away bristle and straight away are identified as enemies of his. And so let's look now at who these enemies are. In verse 6, it says that some of the scribes are sitting there, questioning their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're 100% right. They've been reading scriptures for hundreds of years. They are on the edge of their seats, and they straight away go, whoa, that is a massive claim. To claim that you can reconcile people to God, that you can reconcile them to themselves and to others, only God can do that. And they're 100% right. But instead of saying it with a sense of, could this be? Is this the Messiah? A sense of edge of your seat excitement. They're saying it very quickly with almost like a handoff, Bucky's Boita style. Not a chance is this the same person who we've been reading about in Scripture. They straight away are lacking in trust. And remember, these are people who have studied Scripture for many years and who should be the most excited. These are the people that should have been the, the most kind of overjoyed. Uh, the analogy I could, the best I could think of is um, anyone who follows Premier League soccer now um, and, and the, these Liverpool fans. You know, for 30 years they've waited to win. And that's a long time. And they've just waited to win and they should win now. I mean, they, they, really, they really should win. And when this moment comes of victory, it would almost be like a Liverpool fan going, oh, gee, man, I'm so disappointed. I can't believe Jurgen Klopp's our manager. I can't believe. It would just be so bizarre. You're like, wait, but that's the thing you've been waiting for for so long. Why are you not, why are you not in the streets wearing your scarf and everything, you know, getting all excited? What, what went wrong here? And that's what Mark is trying to capture as he records this incident, is that this is utterly bizarre, that the very people who've been studying the Scripture, waiting to are why are they the ones that are the enemies of God? What is going on here? They're upset here because Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins. Very soon he's going to be enjoying the hospitality of tax collectors, the social outcasts. Tax collectors weren't even allowed into the temple area. They were that shunned by the Jewish community. But he's going to go and eat with them and hang out with them. Then they're going to notice that his disciples don't fast according to the rules that everyone else copies. And then they're going to notice him healing on the Sabbath and being active on the Sabbath. And all of this means that by the time we hit chapter 3, they are plotting to bring Jesus down. Jesus wasn't murdered by the outsiders. He was crucified by the very insiders that should have anticipated his return. This is fascinating if you actually study what's going on here. And Jesus knew they would be his opponents. And I, I think, what was it about it? And I, I think, in a nutshell, there are many things, but it would probably be just simply that Jesus Christ came and he didn't conform with what they thought God should be like. They had a pattern in their mind, and they said, this is what God's like. And you'll notice, this God is very much like me. 
And this guy's into the same things as me and uh, believes the same things as me. He's passionate about the same things as me. And suddenly Jesus Christ arrives and he isn't like the God they imagined. And that causes their hearts to harden. One of the commentators in this passage said that Jesus Christ is like a flame. Some hearts melt, other hearts like clay harden. When Jesus Christ arrived, the Pharisees' hearts of clay harden and they go, no, this is not the Messiah. Others have hearts of wax that are melted and, and shaped. I thought of another a way of putting it. We've had the August tour, and many of you have been cycling. Congratulations. They're the awkward people um, struggling around the, the venue. And something they would appreciate is that if you are cycling, the best position to be in is slightly behind someone who's going really fast. You get into the slipstream. You get to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Now, I often think of these scribes as being those that are going, no, God, this is how it should be. We've set the course. Jesus, get in line with us. Get into our slipstream. We know how life works. Get into our slipstream. And Jesus is just looking at going, this is utterly bizarre. I've made you. I'm your creator. Get into my slipstream. I'm revealing the king of the kingdom. I'm showing you what God invisible is like. Don't be so proud as to, as to expect me to get into your slipstream. But humble yourself. Recognize who I am and get into my slipstream and do life in my presence as I form you with my easy yoke and my light burden, see from me how to live life and how to be fully human. See, Jesus also doesn't allow them to kind of get away with their opposition. You see in verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. He straight away comes at them with a question. And he's doing it because he loves them. He's doing it because he wants them to see that what they're thinking is not correct, trying to get God in their own image. He's saying, no, 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 come and see the God that, that asks you to conform to the image he's made you in. And he asks a great question. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk? And of course, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no evidence that can be checked afterwards. It's like, are my sins forgiven? I think so. I don't know so. I mean, it's, I hope so. And, and you're kind of left there. There's no, there are no tires to kick there. There's nothing you can actually check. But as soon as you say, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, everyone can lean in there and have a look and say, let's see, does this person have authority? Can they do it? What Jesus is saying is the physical thing is important, but it's not nearly as important as the reality that God has made a way for you to be reconciled to. I mean, that's a far bigger deal. That's what we really need. We might want physical healing. We might want financial security. We might want good friends. We might want a good life. But what we really need is the presence of God to become more aware of ourselves and to grow into the image of how he's made us, to be fully human. And so Jesus is saying, this is more important, but I know you can't test it. So I know you'd struggle to believe me. So I'm going to do this lesser thing so that you can connect the dots and go, wow, if you can do that, perhaps the authority you speak of to forgive sins is, although hard for me to test now before the cross and your resurrected glory is something I can start to shape my life upon. And so Jesus in verse 10 says to his enemies, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. In order to demonstrate that I'm the king of the kingdom, I want you to rise and pick up your bed. 
Jesus used the phrase there, son of man. That's a reference to Daniel 7. I want to put the verse up here because I want to show you just how powerful Jesus' claim is, just how all-encompassing he's claiming to be. He said, Daniel, I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. So now this is the description of this promised Messiah from many years before. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. How massive is this vision of the one who would come to have all authority over nations, have all dominion. This is the king of the kingdom. And how amazing that he would be as loving and as tender as Jesus Christ. This calls for a response. Donald English, who've already quoted, said, Mark, when he's writing this gospel, is pointing out to us the double thrust in his message. It's about who Jesus is. It's like, this is who Jesus is, but it's also about how people should respond to Jesus. These two themes run throughout the gospel of Mark. What will your response be tonight? Jesus is the fire in the room. He's the one claiming all authorities, claiming to be the son of man. He said, I'm going to do this physical healing because I'm, I'm actually pointing you towards the spiritual reality which I've come to reveal. Will you have a heart of clay that hardens up and resists? Or will you have a heart of wax which melts and says, I'm getting into your slipstream, Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm going to learn from you how to do this one and only life. And so there was opposition. There were a bunch of people saying, this is not how it should be. But Jesus still went public, and he will continue to go public. And in conclusion, we then think about the implications of this, and we say, well, wait a second. We thought there was a system here. We thought there were kind of the goody-two-shoes people that did life well, and they scored more points than the others, and so they would be the insiders. And what Jesus reveals here is there's a whole new operating system in his kingdom. You see, he rose. This is the man. And he demonstrates that he's been physically healed by picking up his bed, and he goes off. And everyone's amazed, glorify God. They say, we never saw anything like this. We see this, this kingdom breaking in moment where this outsider who would have been shunned is suddenly brought up and, and brought into full humanity. And this is a picture Jesus is getting at of saying, our rebellion, our sin that we need to be forgiven from has implications in our life. It, it causes a whole bunch of pain in our lives and in others. And what Jesus in this beautiful little picture is saying is, I can restore that. I can heal that. I can bring about full humanity, that sin and disease are incompatible with my kingdom. And I'm calling you to live and oppose the things that I oppose, to oppose sin and to oppose disease, to come and join me in this great calling to see the kingdom of God come in Cape Town as it is in heaven. I think I'm challenged by this because I think of my own life and I think, man, I... I've got a whole thing, bunch of things I want, a whole bunch of things I want, but have I really appreciated what Jesus is teaching me around what I need and how I need to base my life? And we're going to see for the next few weeks that a whole bunch of people don't accept the, the truth of who Jesus is. The opposition continues to mount. And so before we, before we um, land our time, I want to ask us just a couple of questions to make sure that this does help us practically in our lives. I think of my own life, I often can stay at the conceptual level, but Jesus insists that we get down to the experiential, down to our fingertips. And so when I think about this group of people breaking in and finding a king, I think of this question for all of us to ponder. Is the forgiveness of sins food for your soul? 
uh, sorry, quite a few slides ahead now. Is the forgiveness of sins food for your soul? In other words, do you, do you recognize that what you need more than anything else is an awareness of a God who is there, but then secondly has chosen to forgive you and to invite you in love to have a relationship with him? Is that food for your soul? Is that something that nourishes you? Something that, that excites you? Something that gets you going? I've, I've noticed in my life, because I focus on my performance and learning to get better, learning to get better and performing, getting better, I've almost got a phrase in my mind, you sort of saved to serve, saved to serve. What God's sort of saying in this moment is, no, no, you're not just saved to serve. You've also invited to savor. You're invited just to stop and go, wow, God, I'm in a, in a world that you created. You're in control and you're good. I get to just savor who you are. My wife, Leanne, uh, went for a sup earlier this week. I'm a hero because I made the kids lunches and took them to school so that she could go sup. And you know that herd of dolphins that kind of make their way around the point? You just see the frothy water every now and again. You go, there they are, there they are. They have a side dolphin. She headed out to them, and it looked like they were going away. And then they turned, and they came back. And she found herself for quite a few minutes just hanging out with the dolphins. They're jumping up and down, playing with it. She just said, she came back. She said she was so full of joy. She was like, man, I can't believe God made these creatures. She says, I don't know what they do, but they just have a lot of fun. <laughs> they're just out there having so much fun. They're so playful. They're so delightful. And I just, Leanne said to me, I just felt such joy in who God is. That this God has included me in his kingdom and that he longs for us to experience the same level of joy. Is that, is that food for your soul, that you've got this creator God who's available, that you're not just saved to serve, but you're saved to savor how good God is? And then secondly, do you forgive others? Because when we get this forgiveness that we've got, we have a big change in our relationships with others. We should be able to extend forgiveness to others. The Lord, his disciples asked him, how can we pray? He said, okay, um, one of the lines, God, forgive me my sins as I forgive others. That's sin against me. And it's so easy to pray the first one. Forgive me my sins. The next one is like, whoa, wait a second. I had a moment knowing I was going to preach this message where I was trying to get my kids from Boulders Beach back home and we got stuck in traffic in town. There were about, I think, um, 32 movies getting shot in town yesterday. I mean, I might be exaggerating, but it seemed like every single street had filming in progress, filming in progress. I was like losing it going, what genius sat down and went, hmm, August weekend, let me give permission for every film studio to also form a movie. I just was getting more and more resentful in my heart. And I, I was like saying, at one point I, I found myself like breathing heavily and saying, I just don't think they made a sensible decision, Leanne. And, um, and I've got three kids in the back and they're losing it because they've been in the car since Simon's so time. The whole thing's going, and I'm just struggling to forgive whoever it was that gave all these permissions. And I, I played a little trick on my mind and I said, Paul, imagine you got an email, someone, relative has died and they've left you 20 million rand. Imagine that email. Just, just imagine right now. Imagine that email. How would you be responding right now? I'd be like, hey, it's okay. Really, it's okay. All the best with your film, sir. I'm fine here. I'm happy. I mean, I really, I, I'm sure it's another 40 minutes of my day, but I'm happy. I've got 20 million rand waiting for me when I get home. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tax that online delivery system. I mean, it really made a difference, right? Just that one little thought. And of course, the little trick here is how much more do we have? How much, really, how much more do we have when we are reunited to our creator God, when we've given an identity of a son and a daughter, where he's promised his spirit to be at work in us, saying, I know you, and I'm going to give you not what you want, but what you need, and you can trust me, because I'm the one who's overcome your sin, who's redeemed you at the cross, who's overcome death, 
who rose again. 20 million is a small thing compared to that. So why are you allowing bitterness to take root in your life? Why are you struggling to forgive others? The main reason is because you actually haven't seen how big his love for you and how big his forgiveness for you is. So don't try and hide the fact that you're struggling with unforgiveness. Go back to the root of it to say, I'm actually struggling to see how good God is. The dolphin creator God. Struggling to see how joyful he is and how lavish he is towards me. Because obviously, if I saw that clearly, the whole perspective on life would have changed. Don't allow bitterness to take root and destroy your life. Allow his forgiveness to splash you and splash others. And then finally, are you challenged by Jesus? This inside out kingdom, if you find yourself with God always agreeing with you, you go through your day just going, thank you, Jesus, that you're on my side, and you never feel challenged, you could be like someone who's saying to God, get behind me, I'm setting the pace, get into my slipstream, God. You might be making God in your image. Far more likely is that God is going to train you this year, and he's going to show you where you are not aligned with him, and he's going to ask you to come into his slipstream. If that's not happening on a regular basis, you potentially are struggling because you are not seeing God as he truly is. You might be following the wrong Jesus, one who is aligned with you rather than the true Christ. I'm going to invite the band up now. We're going to have a time to respond. Please stand with me. The Jesus uh, you need is not the parent that just gives you what you want. It's not the parent that stays up, allows you to stay up all nights and eat sweets. The Savior you need is the, the one who's prepared to challenge you. The Jesus you need is the one that says to you, no, actually, this is your problem. You've put your hopes in all the wrong places. You need my forgiveness. The Jesus you need is the one who knows you better than you know yourself and who can teach you, train you to know yourself. It's the Jesus who comes to you aggressively with his grace and forgiveness, with his lavish kindness, He's always ready to give you what you need. It's the Jesus who loves you enough to say, wait, wait, I'm working out good things, beautiful things, eternal things. Trust me. This is the same Jesus who was in that house in Capernaum all those years ago. This is the same Jesus who's with us today by his spirit. The good news is there's no need to tear a hole in the roof. He invites you now to meet him and to respond to him in worship.